Well, seven and a half months I've been speaking to you and sharing God's word with you, and I'm happy to do so. Now for the first time in the seven and a half months, I'm going to share somebody else's sermon. I came across this sermon, and I really liked part of it, and I really hated part of it. And I couldn't resist fixing it so that I could use it. It's by a Lutheran pastor, not a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod pastor, and that's why I had to fix it a little bit for use in a Missouri Synod congregation. And it's based on the call of Nazareth. Everybody knows people who don't seem to matter. We're aware that fellow human beings die of starvation, violence, and disease in many places of the world, maybe even in our own town. But we don't know most of them personally. We see people in our daily walks all the time or hear about them on the news, but we don't actually know them. Whatever their stories might be, they don't seem to matter that much to us. They're unknown. And for the most part, they will remain unknown. Only the most extroverted of us could strike up a conversation with total strangers. The rest of us would perhaps be content with just thinking of them as not that important to me. And the reality is we don't know for sure if other people matter in the world. The world's so large and complex that we find ourselves struggling for meaning. And what might also be true is that we are not 100% convinced that we matter all that much to the world. We exist from day to day and we wonder whether anybody out there thinks of us as important or meaningful. I mean, anyone outside our own family. Jesus in his day certainly encountered people whom the world wrote off as inconsequential. Matthew, for instance, oh, he was important as a tax collector with a Roman soldier at each side with the right to enforce the taxes and opportunity to skim a little bit off the top for himself. But to his own people, he would have been a traitor, a disgrace to his family, and likely unwelcome in synagogue or yeshiva. Those who attended to the taxes of the infidel, occupying army were considered dead as far as their life in the Jewish community was concerned. And this shunning would have rendered Matthew a non-person in first century Israel. 
Now, after today's gospel reading, chapter 9 continues. And we're going to encounter, Bill, are you listening? We're going to encounter Jairus, the leader of the synagogue in Capernaum, whose daughter has died. She's just 12 years old. We don't know what killed her. But Jairus knew where he was going. He was going to find Jesus because he knew nobody else could help. And as on his way, Jesus is interrupted by a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years. The bleeding was painful, at least psychologically, for the woman because it would have made her ceremonially unclean. Probably would have made her unsuitable as a choice for a wife, which means she also would not have children. And since women in the first century did not own property, it might have meant that she made her living as a beggar. We can tell how inconsequential she is because she's able to get right through the crowd without anybody touching her, stopping her, speaking to her. She's able to get right up behind Jesus and touch the garment of his, the edge of his garment, and she was instantly healed. But she was considered to be of no consequence by the people who knew her. In that day and age, avoiding her would have been the thing that mattered. Next in chapter 9, our Lord heals two men who are blind and drives a demon out of another man who's not able to speak. And our gospel writer, after going through the call of Matthew, the raising of the dead of a little girl, the cure of a woman with a 12-year hemorrhage, restoring sight to the blind and driving out a demon, our Lord turns to his disciples and he commands them. Since the harvest is great, laborers so few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into his harvest. And the thing that binds Matthew and the young girl who had died and the, the bleeding woman and the disabled man together, the disabled men together in these stories is that they were all untouchable until Jesus touched them. They were people without place or future or dignity. In a real sense, they were all cut off from their community and from this life. And Jesus pulls each of these folks out of their situation and returns them, restores them to a position of life and dignity. In Jesus. God is, in fact, establishing a new age in the midst of the present one. 
the question that the disciples probably had is, who's included in this new age? Matthews gives us these narratives to help us see that the the welcome of the new age that, that Jesus has come to inaugurate is a lot broader than anything his disciples or the, the Pharisees or the teachers of the law could imagine. God now means to bring all people, even the least of them, along for the ride. It's a call that will rankle the religious re- leaders in Jerusalem and eventually lead to their putting Jesus to death. But at the same time, it's incredibly good news. For the kingdom that is established, though not yet fully brought to bear, destroys powers that enslave us, brings forgiveness, healing, and wholeness to all. And the good news then is twofold. Certainly it was good news for Matthew and for the bleeding woman, for the little girl and the beleaguered men. They were restored to life and community. And it was good news for Israel as a nation because they were set to be remembered throughout all of history as the chosen of God who brought the Messiah who preserved the Word of God. brought the Messiah to human beings. To be a light to the nations. The servant people of God. But there was another aspect as well. Once restored, each one is called to bear witness to the coming kingdom of God. Each bears witness to the reality that God is present and ruling in this world, even though this world is only temporary. That God so loves this world that as His children live in it, though the world may bring them grief, though the world may bring them suffering, they are here to be the healers of this world until the Lord calls them home. They don't have to use words to do this. They are living signs of the reign of God. They point to Jesus as God's anointed through whom God's plan comes to fullness. Once the mystery of the cross has astounded them and the news of the the resurrection has spread among them and the Holy Spirit has been poured out in their midst at Pentecost, they can remember everything they've heard. can remember what Christ had said he had come to do and who they were consequently commanded to be. 
They are called to live differently in the world, and so are we. Our being brought to faith through the power of the Word and through holy baptism and sustained in the faith by our gathering to hear the Word of God and sing His praises in words that come from the Scripture itself, to be sustained at His altar and encouraged by each other. are signs that our restoration is underway and that God continues to give us forgiveness and purpose and strength for this journey. Because we have been forgiven, restored and gathered by the far-reaching grace of God, we too are called to live differently in this world bearing witness to the kingdom and proclaiming the kingdom in word and deed by welcoming all people with a special eye to those who are labeled inconsequential by the world. We who have been touched by by the healing hand of Jesus are called to bear witness to the kingdom of God, proclaiming that God has in Jesus changed history. Our witness is a yes and a no. It's a witness of no to the powers that exclude others in this world. It's a witness of no to the powers that drive us to serve ourselves only in a fractured world. It's a witness of no to the searches for life and purpose and meaning apart from God but it is a witness of yes to God's way of life. A witness of yes to God's invitation to join in the wedding feast. It's a witness of yes, Lord, I know that you have forgiven me. And when you call me, I will hear your call. And I will join. It's a witness of yes to the understanding that all of us are linked in one great body, the body of Christ. And in that body, everyone matters. Finally, the invitation is open to all, not just to the righteous or those who pretend for the moment to be righteous. It's open to all of us. And in today's text, it is extremely clear that it's especially open to sinners. Our challenge today is to ask ourselves a couple of hard questions. Who is God including in his feast? Who would Jesus be eating with that we avoid? And how can we invite them to his table? Who are the people who are lost and neglected and thrown away in our midst? How can we see them? Not as numbers, but as stories, as situations, but as people for whom Christ died. 
and invite them to the one who alone can forgive their sins and restore their dignity as he has restored ours. It's always easier to feel good about ourselves by pointing out the faults and failings of others, to point our fingers in blame at others for all of the problems of this world. There's no shortage of religious outrage these days in that regard. But one of the things that infuriates and saddens me is how so much of what I hear in the media that has the mantle of religion is a matter of simply pointing to other people and saying, there's the sinner. If the sinner's out there, why would you need to be forgiven? Of course the sinner is there. But the sinner is here. road to the cross, the road in which we recognize that we ourselves are sick and in need of healing, is much more difficult. The road that says that God's solution is already victorious in Jesus Christ does not fear to face the self in honesty. It is one of the things that I think is most realistic and most blessed about our Christian truth. That the first thing that happens is that we see ourselves in the mirror of the law and have to depend on salvation to come from outside of us. then once we know that we have been saved by one so much more powerful, so much more holy, so much more, that we live a life in response, in gratitude, in witness, facing ourselves with honesty and facing others with open arms. For in God's eyes, each one of us matters. In fact, each quarter of God's creation matters very much to the one who has loved us from before the dawn of time. None of us is trash to be thrown away. None of us is inconsequential. How we live, what we do, changes dramatically because we have been grasped by the living, forgiving God. And what we do afterwards matters a great deal as well. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Now may the peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.
I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker